There is an old Celtic saying that goes, let your feet follow your heart until you find your place of resurrection. When Celtic Christians set out on Deora Day, also called Peregrinatio, a pilgrimage without a specific destination in mind, they often talked about this idea of journeying toward their place of resurrection. In one sense, they meant this literally. They were walking toward the place where they would spend the rest of their life, where they would be buried, and then after physical death, they would receive the resurrection of the body promised by Jesus. But journeying to a place of resurrection likely also held a sense of hope and trust that God would bring them, even before their physical death, to a place of new, transformed, abundant life. As we continue to follow the way of Peregrinatio, we'll consider today how Jesus may invite us to walk toward our place of resurrection, the ways that he may want to bring us from death to abundant life in him, and we'll consider the areas of our lives and communities that need to find resurrection. But first, let's warm ourselves up, our bodies, minds, hearts, and souls, with a sensory exercise. Our senses are a pathway to the present. A little mindfulness of our five senses goes a long way toward bringing us back to the moment at hand, especially when we feel anxious or overwhelmed. And, as you may have noticed already on the Celtic Way, time spent with our physical senses can help us prepare to receive the spiritual gifts of an experience as well. So let's take time now to do just that. Look around and scan your surroundings. Notice the quality of the light. Is the light casting shadows in some places? Is the light reflecting off something? What is the light illuminating around you? Next, let's focus on noticing color. What colors stand out to you? Are they bright or dull? If you get closer to a particular natural object, something leafy perhaps, are you able to see more variations in its color than you saw from farther away? Now, let's notice textures. Whether you're actually able to touch an object or not, can you notice what is rough? What is smooth? What is soft and what is hard? What is damp or wet? What is dry? Where are multiple textures like these occurring at once in an object? Now, let's pay attention to the sensations on or in your body. 
How does the air feel on your skin? How does the fabric of your clothes feel against you? I invite you to place your hand over your heart. Can you feel it beat? Feel your chest rise and fall as you breathe. Simply become aware of the feeling of being alive in your body in this moment. Are there colors, textures, or other sensations in your body that are bringing you joy right now? Embrace that feeling. Where do you see beauty around you, whether it's off in the distance or close at hand? Welcome that pleasure. As you walk today, try to come back to your senses regularly. Notice when you feel joy and pleasure, and then delight in those sensations and emotions. Receive them as good gifts from God. Psalm 16 Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, They are the noble ones, in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods, or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Much like we just spent a few minutes noticing the light, color, texture, and other sensations in the creation around us, Psalm 16 speaks of delight, gladness, joy, and pleasure to be found for eternity in the Creator. Let's encourage our souls to rejoice in these promises like the psalmist does. The final verse says, 
you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I invite you to become present to your breath as we pray a silent breath prayer for the next few minutes. Inhale. Exhale. And as you inhale, pray, there is joy as you exhale in your presence. There is joy in your presence. There is joy in your presence. Continue on your own as the music plays. When we met Bridget on a previous walk, we heard stories of her early life and how a spirit-directed human mix-up led her to be ordained as a bishop, a position otherwise restricted to men. We'll walk again with Bridget today, meeting her underneath the giant oak tree in Kildare, and we'll see what God had in store for her, the land and community that became her place of life and resurrection. The story goes that when Bridget wanted to start her community, she went to the local chieftain and asked him to give her land. The chieftain balked and refused her bold request. So Bridget took the simple cloak that she was wearing and held it out to him. May I at least have only the land that my cloak here covers? 
That's all I'm asking. It was a normal-looking cloak, so the chieftain agreed. Standing under the oak tree on that hill in Kildare, Bridget asked four of her friends to help her. She instructed each person to take a hold of a corner of her cloak. Then she told them to begin walking in opposite directions as far as the cloak would stretch. One walked north, one walked east, one walked south, and one walked west. As they walked, the cloak continued to stretch and stretch and stretch until it covered several acres of land. When the chieftain saw this, he was dismayed. He didn't want to give away his land, but he realized that Bridget's God must have been the one behind this miracle. And so he agreed that the many acres now covered by Bridget's cloak would become the boundary of her fledgling community. We can imagine Bridget saying with the psalmist, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Bridget's cloak became a symbol of her community, a place of expansive generosity. The place of her resurrection became a community where many could taste the abundance and wholeness of life in Jesus. Let's listen now to a story from Scripture of some women who also experienced this abundance and wholeness firsthand. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. Be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Imagine these women waking up before the sunrise, gathering the spices and perfumes that they had already prepared. 
Imagine them setting off for the tomb where they had watched Jesus' lifeless body placed days earlier. See them walking there in the dark, straining their eyes to find their footing. As they approach the tomb, the first rays of sun begin to break on the horizon so that they can navigate their path with a bit more ease. They're still numb from the events of the past week, a whirlwind that culminated in witnessing the violent crucifixion of their friend, teacher, and leader. Imagine these women, their grief still raw and unprocessed. In a matter of days, their hopes and plans were devastated. Their world was turned upside down. Imagine them feeling the heavy cloud of death and desolation as their companion. And yet, even in their grief, they rose early that morning. They were unwavering in their love for Jesus, the one who loved them so deeply. They were unwavering in their generosity and hospitality. They were determined to honor and care for the dead body of their crucified friend. These women were the last to leave his cross and then the first to attend to his grave. But what they found was beyond their expectations and beyond their imagination. There was no body. The tomb was empty. They had come prepared to grieve, but instead they were met by angelic messengers who declared, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He is risen. They had come prepared to mourn, but what they found was resurrection. Don't you remember his words, the angels asked them? Jesus had said again and again that he would have to die. He had tried to explain to his friends that something has to die before new life can come. But those words didn't make sense to them until now. Now they could see that Jesus' story and their story of desolation, loss, suffering, and death is a story that ends with resurrection. These women, the last at the cross, the first at the grave, were the first to hear and the first to tell others the good news of Jesus' resurrection. They were the first to know that Jesus' story, that their story, that our story, is a story woven in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. As you imagine Jesus' friends walking to his tomb, carrying the weight of their desolation, I invite you, as you walk right now, to consider what desolation you're walking with. Where are you experiencing disappointment, grief, or anguish? What are the places of death that need resurrection in your life?
There is a well-known story that is told about Bridget and a dying man. An elderly pagan chieftain lay dying in his bed. In his last days, the chieftain was distressed and bothered in both body and spirit. His household servants decided to send for Bridget, who was known for her compassionate and healing presence. Bridget knelt on the floor by the dying man's bed. As was common in those days, the floor was carpeted with rushes, the long green reeds that grow in Irish marshes. As she quietly prayed, Bridget took two long rushes in her hand and began to weave them together. With each prayer, she wove in another rush, until these woven prayers began to take the shape of a cross. The dying chieftain looked on with curiosity and asked Bridget to explain what she was doing. And so she told him of the cross of Christ. She told the story of the loving sacrifice of Jesus dying on the cross. And she shared with him the story of Jesus' resurrection and his offer of new life. She took the strands of this distressed man's life and lovingly, prayerfully wove them into the story of Jesus. The man was so moved by Bridget's words that he asked to be baptized into the family of Jesus and spent his last days in peace, both body and soul. In his dying, he embraced resurrection life. Now, this is a legend that does not have any early source documentation, and it's not included in any of the early biographies of Bridget. Yet, it is always told with Bridget's Cross. And every year, especially on St. Bridget's Day, Irish people gather rushes from local marshes and weave their prayers into the shape of the cross as Bridget did in this story. Bethany Blankespor, who is an InterVarsity staff specializing in spiritual formation, got to experience this herself in 2018. She'll share that story with us now. In 2017 and 18, I led groups of InterVarsity students and staff on Journey Ireland during Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter. These pilgrimages were my first time visiting the land that my maternal grandmother's ancestors had immigrated from during the Great Potato Famine. However, growing up, my connection to this heritage mostly revolved around eating corned beef and cabbage on St. Patrick's Day. But walking the land and learning the stories opened me up to the spirituality of these Irish roots in a new way. Toward the end of our week in Ireland, we visited a small community of contemporary Brigidine nuns in Kildare. Our group sat in a circle, all looking at each other that day. We all came into that space with strands of our stories. We all came onto that pilgrimage in Ireland needing something from God. I came into that journey carrying so much anxiety about the future and grief from the past. I've always found times of transition to be tricky. I'm hardly ever ready to let go of where I've been. Whether that place was filled with joy or suffering, I cling to it. And when a new thing is approaching, I anticipate it with anxiety, even if it is a good thing. Even if I've been waiting for it, it still is new and unknown and scary. 
That Holy Week, I was about halfway through a long-awaited pregnancy. But instead of joy in this much-anticipated season, I was plagued with grief. I couldn't move past the grief of how painful the journey to get to this place had been. I couldn't let go of the unfairness of suffering in general, not just my own, but so much of human suffering. I couldn't move past the times when God had felt silent, when my story had seemed to make no sense. And instead of hope for this gift of new life, I was plagued with anxiety about what might be ahead, about my health, the baby's health, anxiety about how my life and relationships and work and identity were about to change, anxiety about whether I was adequate to take on this new responsibility. This was what I brought into that week. In some way or another, each of us sitting in that circle brought pieces of ourselves and our worlds to that day. We brought strands of our stories that were not quite fully formed, pieces that didn't fully make sense yet, disappointments, questions, gratitudes, and hopes. As we sat in that circle, one of the sisters took two green rushes and asked, what prayers did we want to bring to Jesus that day? Someone offered a prayer of gratitude, and as we prayed that, she wove the two rushes together. As someone else offered a prayer of healing for someone back at home, she took another rush and wove it in. With each prayer, prayers of thanks, prayers of hopes, prayers of intercession, prayers of blessing, the strands of our stories were woven together. As the sister took these pieces of our life and faith that we surrendered in prayer, they began to take the shape of a woven cross. The life of faith is messy. We expect life and discipleship to be linear, to have straightforward trajectory, but instead, we so often find ourselves with broken strands and jumbled pieces and prayers. And so, we sit together, a community of people with messy stories, offering the prayers of our life to a God who weaves beauty out of the broken, a God who makes streams of justice flow in desert places. We offer strands of our prayers to Jesus, who takes them and weaves them into his story of crucifixion and resurrection. And we find that our stories become whole as they are woven into the cross of Jesus. To be honest, at the end of that week in Ireland, I was still dealing with intense anxiety. I had not moved through my grief. I was still wrestling with anger and filled with questions for a God who allows suffering in the world and in my life. It took a long time, probably another year and a half, for God to really bring healing and resolution to that season. But what was so powerful about the time of prayer in Kildare was not that it made everything all better. The strands of our stories weren't woven into tidy bows. No, they were woven into Christ's cross. They were woven into the suffering love of the God who died for all of us. And that was the way of prayer 
that I needed for that season. A way of bringing, again and again, my anxieties, my grief, my questions, and anger to the cross of Jesus, trusting that in Jesus, the cross of death does lead to resurrection. I got to take home the Bridget's cross that we wove together that day. It still sits on my desk, and when I see it, I see a tangible picture of the prayers that we brought on that journey. I see a community of faith knit together into the cross of Jesus, a cross that brings us from death to new life. I see the hope of wholeness and resurrection. How about you? Imagine offering the strands of your story to Jesus, especially the parts that feel unresolved. What are those unfinished strands where you long for a resurrection life? Imagine seeing those strands woven into a cross of love and resurrection. How is Jesus inviting you into hope and prayer as you wait for him to bring healing and restoration to these strands of your story? Every human being needs that experience of God meeting them in their place of death and desolation. No matter how privileged, no matter how great your life is, we all need to experience the resurrection life that Jesus offers. 
But we see with Bridget's story and with the story of the women at the empty tomb that after experiencing the resurrection of Jesus in their own place of desolation, they respond by sharing the resurrection of Jesus with others. Their healing is not just for themselves. They are blessed to be a blessing. The women go and tell the other disciples, who are still in despair and grief, what they have seen. Jesus is alive! Bridget, likewise, sees the desolation of the dying chieftain and offers him the hope of resurrection, even as he nears death. Bridget led her community as someone who looked for and saw the places where there was desolation and death and chose to be part of their shalom and healing. She was devoted to the care of souls in her community. And soul care requires an eye to see where people are experiencing death and desolation and then point them to God's consolation, to new life. Stories abound of Bridget having eyes to see desolation in the social networks around her, with a particular concern for those who are vulnerable and economically poor. She had a habit of boldly selling expensive things that didn't belong to her. She then gave the proceeds to members of the community who needed the money. As a young girl, she did this with the sword and armor of her chieftain father. As an abbess, she sold the ornate, expensive robes of Bishop Conleth and gave the money to beggars. But she didn't steal these things lightly. She stole because her eyes were attuned to the desolation around her. She stole these things to meet particular needs, to make particular situations right. She risked the consequences because she trusted that God also wanted this movement toward life and shalom for the vulnerable in her community. And Bridget's eyes saw further out, beyond her own community and people. Bridget saw the outsiders, and her community thus grew a reputation as a refuge for all people. Bridget saw the desolation in what led refugees to seek protection, peace, and healing within the boundaries of her community. And she invited them in to experience life and resurrection in Jesus. Like Bridget, God invites us to see what he sees. He invites us to be attuned to the desolation in our communities and to join him in bringing life, healing, and wholeness. He invites us to be part of a community centered in the resurrection life of Jesus, where death and evil and brokenness do not have the final say. Hello. I'm Francine de Pater from the Netherlands, where I work with the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students as the International Student Ministry Coordinator across Europe and as National Director for the Netherlands. With a job like this, it's probably not hard to believe that I have always had an interest in other cultures. This grew a lot when I was an international student myself studying in Costa Rica. I experienced their hospitable culture with people really caring for me. People in Western cultures live their own individual lives, in their own little bubbles. But in Latin America and other cultures, community is what is more valued. 
The default way of living is to include everyone. It really reflects God's heart, I think. I was treated so well as a foreigner in another country, and now I see so many foreigners treated badly by people in my own country. And I'm embarrassed and ashamed of us for that. So I ask God to be able to be part of caring for foreigners like he does. One of the best stories I have experienced of welcoming the foreigner happened right here in the Netherlands with my friend. I call her Ruba, since she comes from a sensitive country. Ruba is a Syrian Orthodox Christian from Aleppo. She lost her whole family there. Her dad was killed in front of her. Her brother was taken by ISIS, never to be seen again. Her mom and sister both died in a bombing in their city. Ruba was the only one to escape. After a horrible route to get to Europe, Ruba arrived at the refugee camp in the Netherlands. Someone there knew she had been studying law back in Syria and pointed out a sign for a movie night for international students happening nearby. Ruba decided to go, and I went too, which is how I know it was really God leading this. I normally wouldn't go to a student meeting like that so far away in another part of the Netherlands, but I happened to need to check in on how the international student group was doing there. So I ended up meeting Ruba at the movie night, and then we connected on Facebook. At the time, I'd been posting a lot of psalms, and Ruba would always like them. I didn't know if she was a Muslim or a Christian or what, but I noticed her interest in what I was posting. And I noticed she suffered a lot and had a lot of hard questions. Then one day I noticed that her city on Facebook changed to Gouda, where I live. So I contacted her and found out that the government had assigned her a flat in Gouda. She was terrified that she didn't know anyone in the city and that she would have to live by herself. I offered to help her with furniture or anything at all, but Ruba never asked for help. She didn't know me and I found out late that she felt like a burden asking someone she hardly knew for help. Meanwhile, the government had given Ruba a key to a completely empty apartment. There wasn't even a light bulb. And they'd run out of volunteers to help refugees like her with the practicalities to set her up well in her flat. And so they just said, good luck with it. When Ruba saw her new flat, she didn't even know where to start. As she walked back to the train station, she felt devastated. In the meantime, I was sitting at home on my couch and I thought of a book I wanted to give for a friend's birthday that weekend. So I decided to go to the bookstore. When I crossed the walk to the train station, Ruba was there exactly at the same moment. Gouda may not be that big, but you could still go years without crossing paths with someone you know that way. This was God arranging it. Ruba joined me in the city for a while and then she came to my home and drank tea and I was able to pray for her. After that, I started helping Ruba, but when I saw just how big the need was, I got my whole church involved to provide furniture and paint the apartment and help in other ways. 40 people were involved in some way or another. Ruba felt that this was so special. She thought God had forgotten her, but because she saw God in our actions toward her, she felt she could believe again in a God who is good. Now Ruba has earned her bachelor's degree and she'll soon get her master's. She was our inspiration for a buddy program across the Netherlands to connect refugee students, most of whom come from Muslim backgrounds, to Dutch students. 
There are refugee Dutch buddy programs now running in many cities. Though Dutch students regularly hear about refugees, they rarely meet one. Refugee students are often overlooked in every country and they're a group that needs a lot of help to help them settle into a new society. But this is not only good for the refugee students, it's good for both sides. It may seem like I was the one always taking care of Ruba, but it's really been both ways. Ruba has cared for me in hard times, like when a friend of mine died. In her culture, your worth is defined by your family's place in society, your contacts. Here in the Netherlands, she felt like a nobody because she didn't have those kinds of connections. She had lost everyone in her family and was left alone. And she said to me as I grieved my friend's death, how amazing it is to die with friends and family around you. It has been a long way for Ruba, and it still is. But gradually, she sees more and more that she is a precious somebody, a beloved daughter in God's eyes. God invites us to have eyes to see the places of desolation all around us, in our communities, in our larger society, and in the land, God's creation that sustains us. Jesus brings life anywhere there is desolation, and he invites us to join him in whatever work we do. Bridget's early biographer described her community as a fertile vine pushing its burgeoning branches out on all sides. This earthy description is fitting. Bridget's monastic community was certainly centered in prayer and worship, but it was also a farming community. She spent hours working and cultivating the land and the animals on that land. In stories, Bridget is not found praying off in a tower. Instead, we find Bridget in fields, harvesting crops, milking cows, grazing sheep, petting wild ducks. And in return, the stories show the land and animals responding with mutual care and honor. In caring for creation, she was both working and worshiping. Her work and her worship were intertwined. She worshiped through working. Part of the desolation of our world is when the work that you do doesn't bring flourishing, when work is only toil, or when work is separated from a life of worship. But whatever our work is, whether it is farming or teaching or cooking or writing or parenting or any number of other occupations, God makes all of our ordinary work holy. Whatever work we do, God invites us to seek shalom, wholeness and healing and justice in all of our work. Consider now where there is desolation in your community, society, or field of study or work. How might God invite you to seek shalom there, to bring life and resurrection into those places of desolation?
Let's close our walk today by coming back to the hopeful words in Psalm 16. The psalmist says God will not abandon us to the realm of the dead, but instead has paths of life and joy in store for us. With that in mind, for any and all places in your life where it feels like death and desolation reign, may you know and trust that Jesus is a God of resurrection. May you notice as he weaves the strands of your life, not into tidy bows, but into the love and hope of his cross. As we each experience that resurrection life, may we be people who carry that hope to a broken world around us. 